All right, our sermon text today is from uh, Genesis chapter 44. It's verses 1 through 17. If you follow along in your Bible, I'm going to go verse by verse, so uh, you might want to have it handy and see what we can dig up out of there. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you that first, and then we'll get into uh, what we're going to be talking about. This is Genesis 44, starting in the first verse. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, in his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money, which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we will also be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless." Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that a man such as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now you, uh, quite a few of you here, haven't uh, been in one of these services before, uh, at least in the Joseph cycle. And I want you to understand that what is going on here has to be taken pretty much in context with the rest of Joseph's life, how God has been working out a picture of what's coming in future history. So if you're a little bit lost in this particular sermon, I apologize in advance. There are some words that I'm going to use that have been explained very clearly in previous sermons, which are going to be used again today. And uh, uh, it is all picturing something which happened uh, in Jesus Christ and which will continue to happen in the future. So if you're a little bit uh, unsure of what's going on, I apologize. And the second thing that I want to say is that this sermon is a little bit longer than uh, uh, previous sermons. And uh, I'm going to try to speak a little bit quicker. But uh, because of that, um, I don't have a lot of life applications for you, a lot of things to make you feel good, in other words. It's, it's more just analyzing what's going on here because this is one of the most beautiful passages that I've come across in the book of Genesis. It, uh, you know, typing this, actually, I was in tears. So it won't be that way today, the way I'm explaining it, but it really is astonishing stuff, which God pictures right in these verses. Today's 17 verses could be, and they probably should have been, two separate sermons. There are a lot of details that I'm going to have to skip over in order to finish everything today. And this, as I said, it may be a little bit longer than other sermons, but what is hidden here is so wonderfully revealed in the New Testament that it is astonishing. As far as I know, and I've said this in a few sermons in the past, there's no one else who has ever come to the conclusions that you're going to hear today. So I hope that you're going to enjoy them, and I hope that you will be blessed in them. God did a mighty work in Jesus Christ, and that has been available to all people of the world. But for the most part, Israel rejected his plan. However, in his great way, he has worked things out to reconcile them once again to himself. As the church age winds down, and it is winding down, the time for Israel's reconciliation is coming nearer and nearer. A major portion of this plan is seen today in these verses. Our text verse for today comes from Zechariah chapter 13. I will bring the one-third, speaking of the people of Israel, through the fire will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people and each one will say, the Lord is my God. 
In order to be the Lord of Egypt, Joseph had to suffer first. But after the suffering came his exaltation. And before he reveals himself to his brothers, he's going to put them through a test to refine them. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to do for Israel before he is fully revealed to them. It's all to be found in this majestic and superior word. And so, may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today, as I normally do. The first is the cup of divination. This is verses 1 through 5. Verse 1. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Now, this happens on the same day as the feast in Joseph's house. It happened last week, in last week's sermon, so you may not know what exactly what's going on here. During the feast, there was a lot of drinking going on. This is what the Hebrew implies. With the, while the brothers are in a rather happy state, Joseph prepares them for a test of their character. The steward of the house is given his instructions. The sacks are to be filled with food, even an abundance of food. As it says, as much as they can carry. And once again, the money that they brought for the grain is to be returned, just like it was the first time they came down from Canaan to Egypt. Once again, like the last time, Joseph will not accept the money from their hand for the grain that is needed to sustain them. Just like before, the food by necessity is a gift. In the past, they'd sold their brother Joseph off and they'd received money for him. If he accepted their money, it would imply an exchange of payment for what he was actually sold for. If you see Christ in this, you're right. He paid the debt and the bread of life is offered freely. How could he receive payment for what was a gift of grace? And more so when the money that they have partly came from his sale all those many years earlier. Verse 2, also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. The silver cup was certainly used by Joseph at the meal. The brothers would have seen him using it, and so what is coming has been prepared in advance. The implication is the cup was in sight of all of them, and they all saw it, and one of them must have then taken it. However, if this was all that was in their sack, it would have been convincing evidence that it was stolen by Benjamin. But that's not all that's in their sacks, okay, for Benjamin or for any of them. They all have their money back in their sack. And so they could come to the certain conclusion that Benjamin is, in fact, innocent. The cup Benjamin has is not one he stole. Instead, it was a cup he bore, even though it was not his to bear picture of Jesus is to be seen in this action, if you can understand his work. Also in this verse, instead of using the term food like he did in the previous verse, he now uses the word grain. It is the word shever, which I explained in previous sermons, which has been used five times so far to describe the grain that is being bought and sold between the brothers. It implies the word shever, a breaking or a fracture or a breach. In other words, it's grain inside the kernel. These different words for food and grain are all going to make sense eventually. The cup that's referred to here is the Hebrew word gabia. It comes from an unused root word which conveys the sense of elevation or roundness like a hill. Thus, it is a goblet or a bowl of large size. Now, while we go through these verses, I want you to try to think of where this cup, this gabia, may be connected in the New Testament. Verse 2 continues, So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. The steward complied with the instructions and did exactly as Joseph had directed. Every step of the process here shows a careful and methodical plan to determine what he wants to know. It's all intended to lead to how he will ultimately deal with his brothers. And it is all centering on Benjamin. If you know the meaning of his name, Benjamin means the son of the right hand. Verse 3, as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. Now, it's early in the next day after this big feast where they got a little, you know, intoxicated, and they're sent away. The Hebrew here says, Haboker or, the morning light, and the men were sent away. It implies that this is the time of the very first light when it just comes out. This is the only time in the entire Old Testament that this exact expression is used. However, it corresponds perfectly what is said in Matthew 28, verse 1. 
Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb, right as the day begins to dawn. Also, it specifically notes, and their donkeys. The story is giving every necessary word to highlight what is happening. They had a great day of feasting, they loaded up, and they're now headed out early with everything that they'd come for and with the animals that they had come with. They're packed on the journey like a family going on a vacation and absolutely nothing is lacking. Verse 4, when they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to the steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? completely aware, Joseph is completely aware of when they left and he's probably sitting there estimating the amount of time it's going to take for them to get just out of the city. Joseph gives the order at that time as he's had everything ready for this exact moment. He's had it prepared as if he's reaching a climax. The steward here would certainly have had guards with him as he went. There's 11 of the brothers and there are Probably, although not mentioned anywhere in any of these stories, many servants that went with them. Because you have to remember, they're feeding the entire camp, which included many, many servants and, you know, entire families. So they would have taken as many donkeys as they can. So this steward would have taken guards along with him as he went. And when he catches up with them, he's told to ask them why they repaid evil for good. Well, this is a very common biblical theme. It's seen from the Garden of Eden, and it's seen all the way through the pages of the Bible. It is a part of the human condition as well. Someone does something good, and then another person turns around and does something wicked to them. Probably most of us have experienced that in our own lives, either personally or we've done it to somebody else. The ultimate example of it, of course, though, is God. He sent his son, Jesus, and we crucified him. And then even after that, we turn around and we reject him. Proverbs will show us the penalty for this type of behavior, though, is only more evil. Here's what it says. Whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Thus Israel, because they rejected their Lord and they continue to reject him to this day, have found much evil in their house for the rejection of Jesus Christ. It has gone on now for 2,000 years. But God, who is very patient and he is infinitely forgiving, has brought them back into the land of Israel and he is preparing to restore them. And this is all being pictured in the life of Joseph. All we can do is thank God for his infinite mercy. Why have you repaid evil for good? What is it that makes a man act in such a way? In the gift of Jesus, it must be understood that his life was given for our sins to pay. And so to turn from him and malign what he has done is to repay evil for his greatest good. Yes, God gave to us Jesus, his son, but we crucified him nailing him to a cross of wood. The cup, which is now in Benjamin's sack, is a special one, and it has a very special purpose, one which points to something which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So let's look at the continuing details. Verse 5, Is this not the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Well, there's a lot of speculation about the wording here. I don't want to mislead you. Almost every single translation that I read says that this is the cup that is used for divination or for telling the future in some way. But among scholars, there are a wide variety of other possibilities which have been submitted. Some say that he would have diligently looked for the cup rather than that he would have used the cup for divination. It is an action by Joseph to find the cup rather than a use by Joseph of the cup. Others say that he would have consulted other diviners in order to find the cup. And another translation, which I agree with because of what's going on here, is that the word instead of divination is testing. In other words, he used this cup to test you, and you have failed the test. As I said, this seems most likely based on the surrounding text. It is the cup from which he drank and the cup that he would have had with him the day before. He is using it to test his brothers. And another thing, it cannot go unexplained that the word for divination here is the word nachash. It is the verb from which is derived the same word in noun form, nachash, which means serpent. It's the same word for serpent that comes from the Garden of Eden and also the serpent, the bronze serpent, which Moses held up in the wilderness to save the people when they were bitten by fiery snakes. This serpent is specifically referred to by Jesus in the New Testament in John chapter 3. Let me read this to you. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So is anybody seeing the connection yet? Anybody placed the cup, Gabia, yet? I want you to keep thinking it through. It is all to be found in the work of Jesus Christ. Our second thought today, well, we burned right through the first thought. We'll go a little slower now. In whomever lies the guilt, let him die. This is verse 6 through 13. Verse 6 says, So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. Just as he was instructed, so he relayed to his brothers. They have been given the words of Joseph, and now comes their denial, which is verse 7. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. There's the immediate protestation of innocence. We haven't done what we've been accused of. This simply is not correct. As we read this account, though, we have to remember what it's picturing. All of these previous sermons, we've given this, and I want you who haven't been here before to know exactly who is being pictured by what. Joseph pictures Jesus. He's the exalted Lord. And the brothers are the tribes of Israel, more specifically the leaders of the tribes, but they represent all of the tribes of Israel. They have been accused of a crime, and they are denying they have committed one. They're actually unaware of their guilt, but they actually bear guilt. Kind of think of Israel today. They're unaware of what they did in the past, but they bear the guilt of what has happened in them as the covenant people. Okay, verse 8. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which was found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? So in their defense, they remind them that they brought back all of the money from the previous trip, even after they'd been out of the reach of Egypt's authority. So why would they try to take a cup made of silver in, place, in a place where they could be caught, especially for something that probably was not worth the same weight in the silver that they'd actually brought back? And as a further defense, they mention both silver and gold. In other words, we could have stolen silver or gold, implying that there was probably gold in their presence in the meeting uh, in the dining with Joseph. So why would we steal a silver cup? And to further their claim, they keep speaking. Verse 9, With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Now what is said here is such a close reflection of what happened to their father, Jacob, many years ago, that the similarity should not be missed. When Jacob fled from his uh, father-in-law, Laban, Rachel took his household gods, if you remember that story. When Laban accused Jacob, his response was, with whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. In fact, every one of these people here, except Benjamin, were with Jacob at the time. Though most of them were very young, it was probably remembered by them as they spoke now. Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen the gods, and none of them now realize what is in their possession. Verse 10, then he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Okay, now, this verse here perplexes scholars because of what seems like a very dismissive or misunderstanding servant. The proposal was that the one who had the cup would be executed and the rest would become their slaves. Instead, the steward basically says, okay, the one who has it will be my slave and the rest of you will be allowed to go free. It doesn't make any sense. But one scholar says that instead of being in agreement, the steward is actually asking a surprised question. Is that right, according to your words? In other words, fair justice only demands the punishment of the thief. This is what makes sense. And it's what makes Bible reading interesting. By reading different versions and by thinking things through, we can come to acceptable answers concerning very hard-to-translate passages. And I assure you, there are many in the Bible. There are many, many verses where they have no idea what's meant, and so they do their best to make a translation. There are Hebrew words that they have no idea what that word actually means, and that's why you get a variety of translations. Eventually, somebody will hit upon what's right, and God will weave it all together into stories just like this. In his words, we see that the one who has the cup will be punished in the place of all others. Anybody seeing a parallel to Jesus there? Verse 11, then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground and each opened his sack. The challenge is accepted. The sacks are opened. Verse 12, so he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. 
The old saying, there's this old saying that says, he who hides can find. It rings true right here. The steward is the one who hid the cup. And he has this dramatic and suspenseful way of finding it. He starts with the oldest and he works all the way down to the youngest in the process. Another connection to the search by Laban in Genesis 31 is made in this verse. The words for, so he searched, in Hebrew is vehapesh. The first time that that was used in scripture was during the search by Laban for the idols in Rachel's tent, but they weren't found. This is the second time this term, vehapesh, is used in the Bible. And this time, what is looked for is found. And this is not a coincidence, but the accounts are being drawn together to show us the contrast between them. If you missed that sermon, or if you've forgotten it, what I would recommend is you go back and you watch it, and you'll be able to draw all of this together because it was very specific what was going on, and it pictured something that covers almost all of human history. The order of that search was carefully described, and yet it was very perplexing. But ultimately, it pointed to the people of Israel and the work of Jesus Christ. And this search is no different. It goes through the sons of Israel, and it ends with Benjamin, the son of the right hand. And the cup which belongs to Joseph is now in Benjamin's sack. Both of them are sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. And they're the last two sons to be born to Jacob. If you remember, you may not remember this, but Rachel has consistently pictured the law. I'm sorry, Grace, not the law. Her older sister Leah consistently pictured the law. That's what's going on here. These sons, these two sons, are the sons of grace. That story, all the way back in chapter 31, is showing us this pattern. It's being contrasted with what we now see in this particular story. Israel has been in exile because they missed the grace. Now the grace must be revealed. None of this is chance and none of this is coincidence. It is given to show us details concerning the Messiah. This cup is in Benjamin's possession. What is that telling us? And another curiosity is that the word for sack used here is that special word that we've seen in a few other sermons, amtachat. It's used only 15 times in the entire Bible, and all 15 of those are in this story of Joseph and his brothers. And it started in Genesis chapter 42, and it ends with this one right here. The word has been used seven times in this chapter alone, and this is the very last time it's going to be used in the entire Bible. It comes from another word, mathach, which is used only one time. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, we read these words. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out, mathach, like a tent to dwell in. And why has Joseph ordered this scenario to happen? Why has it come to this point? The answer is that he wanted to know their attitude towards their youngest brother, Benjamin the second son of Rachel. Did they hate him like they hated Joseph? If so, it would now become evident because they have a reason to simply leave him and to go back home to Canaan. This is why the steward changed the conditions of the agreement from death for one and slavery for all to slavery for just one. Will this happen or will they have a change in attitude towards their father's favorite son? The next verse begins to tell us, Verse 13, then they tore their clothes and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. They here implies all of the brothers. They collectively tear their clothes as a sign of the deepest distress. They're in true anguish, anguish over the chain of events and the situation in which they've found themselves. And without a note of hesitation or consultation, they surrender themselves collectively to whatever fate awaits them. They load their sacks back on the donkeys and return to face the ruler of Egypt once again. Our third thought today, the man in whose hand the cup was found. Verses 14 through 17. Verse 14 says, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. Judah is now highlighted. Why Judah? It's because he's the one who vowed to his father these words in the previous chapter. Send the lad with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. What was vowed is now expected and Judah is specifically named in the Bible to reflect this. Other than Benjamin, none of the other brothers are named in the entire account. It is up to Judah to make things right. Judah is where the term Jew comes from. Judah is representative 
of all Jews in this regard, he will speak for Israel. And if you see the pattern in today's world, the Jews are the people that will have to petition for their Lord. It's very exact what's going on here. Verse 14 continues. And he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. Joseph never left the house, as one might expect, of the Lord of the land who directs the selling of all of the grain. This is the moment to which everything has been pointing, and he has remained to see it through. When the brothers arrived, rather than bowing, they simply and they completely prostrate themselves in the presence of the ruler. Along with the torn clothes, they have wholly humbled themselves in his presence. Jesus the Lord, who is the incarnate word, Jehovah, whom Joseph pictures, will be there in the Lord's house, the temple. It's going to be built. We can say, oh, there's going to be no temple in Jerusalem. The Bible says otherwise. In Revelation chapter 11, there will be a temple there. And when they come to their moment of distress, the Jewish people, they will humble themselves just as the brothers are in front of Joseph right now. This picture is exact. Verse 15, and Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that a man such as I can certainly practice divination? Joseph is the ruler of Pharaoh's house, and he gives them questions which have been long anticipated. And then he follows up with a rhetorical question. What thing have you done? Don't you know that I can look into matters in a way that you can't even perceive? Now, that kind of sounds like Jesus who reads and searches our hearts and minds, right? Here he uses a term, nachesh ve nachesh, divining can divine. Or if you use the translation of that one scholar, testing can test. But again, this does not mean mystical interpretations like divining that one particular translation. Instead, he implies that he can make a trial into a matter or he can discern truth in some way. The emphatic nature of it, the repetition, implies that he has the complete ability to find out the truth. Once again, sounds like Jesus and his ability to discern all things. Verse 16, then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how shall we clear ourselves? Judah's words imply that nothing they say can clear their guilt and nothing they say will be effective to do so. One commentator on this particular verse, I actually had to laugh. He said, this address needs no comment. And then he went on for a full page commenting on it. The heartfelt nature of this particular account cannot be left without our deepest consideration. Verse 16 continues, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here in this verse, the term Ha Elohim, the God, is now used by Judah. Until this point, the sons of Israel have never, never, never used this term. He admits their inability to, specific, to uh, specify what he means. But he's certainly not referring to the matter of the cup when he says this. He's referring to the matter of having sold their brother Joseph more than 20 years earlier. He's saying we bear guilt and God has found it out. It's not speaking of the cup at all. It's speaking about what they did in the past. The Geneva Bible says this about this. If we see no obvious cause for our affliction, let us look to the secret counsel of God who punishes us justly for our sins. And I'll stop there for a minute and I'll tell you that uh, the Geneva Bible got that exactly right. We have secret sins and we have secret faults and they will be judged. They're either going to be judged in us and that will happen in one of a couple ways. It'll be judged in us in this life by more troubles. Some people would call that karma. I don't believe in karma. I just believe that it's divine retribution. Or it will be judged in us in eternity as we go off to our fate because we didn't hand our sins over to Jesus Christ. Or they will be judged in a perfect substitute. And there's only one perfect substitute that can take away our sins, and that's Jesus Christ. But the Geneva Bible's right. One way or another, God demands divine justice. And these brothers are realizing this in their earthly walk. And if you think of Israel, keep thinking of Israel as you're looking at these pictures. They nailed their Lord to the cross. They rejected him for 2,000 years. None of this was a surprise. If you go back to Genesis 38 and the story of Judah and Tamar, you know that the church age was prefigured in these sermons. God knew that this would happen for the greater good. But this divine justice must be satisfied, and it is going to be. Israel is going to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. He knows that God's secret counsel, this is Joseph, is behind what is happening. And so he resigns, that, resigns them to their fate. I said Joseph, but actually it's Judah. He knows 
that what they have done is now requiring God's justice. Verse 16 continues, Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also, with whom the cup was found. In acknowledgement of what they deserve, he offers all of them as slaves again for the deeds of the past and the supposed misdeeds of Benjamin. Verse 17, this is the last verse we're going to look at today. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Joseph is now ready to test the sincerity of the brothers personally. In response to their offer, he makes his own claim, and it is on Benjamin, the son of the right hand. He will be my slave, and the rest of you are free to go in peace. Go back to your father. The word slave here actually is just a servant, okay? This is our last verse today, but the story must be looked at in a way which is going to reveal what is going on. It is, as every story thus far in the cycle of Joseph, since he was sold off to Egypt, pointing to the work of Jesus Christ in his ultimate reconciliation with Israel. From this perspective, and before I give my personal analysis, I'd like to read you the comments of Jameson Fawcett Brown. Here's what they say. Joseph's behavior must not be viewed from any single point or in separate parts, but as a whole. Think of all the things that he's done over the past many sermons to bring them to this point. Okay, A well-thought, deeply laid, and closely connected plan. And though some features of it do certainly exhibit an appearance of harshness, yet the pervading principle of his conduct was real, genuine, brotherly kindness. Read in this light, the narrative of the proceedings describes the continuous, though secret, pursuit of one end. And Joseph exhibits, in his management of the scheme, a very high order of intellect a warm and susceptible heart united to judgment that exerted complete control over his feelings, a happy invention in devising means towards the attainment of his ends, and an inflexible adherence to the course, however painful, which prudence required. Now, these people wrote this about the story of Joseph, and if you simply were to insert Israel and Jesus into that comment... They never made the connection, but I'm telling you that is exactly what has gone on with Jesus in Israel. Every single thing that has happened in the past 2,000 years has been geared toward their punishment for rejecting him, and at the same time, what seems harsh is all directed toward his, towards his reconciliation with them. Every bit of it. And as they said, however painful. Just imagine Jesus' heart. Imagine what he has to go through seeing his brothers suffer because they rejected him. He's working out a church in us, but he hasn't forgotten his own people, nor will he ever. I can't believe the comment Jameson Fawcett Brown gave on that because it is astonishing how perfectly it resembles what's going on in the world today. As they see it, Joseph is working out this exceptional scheme which is intended to produce one ultimate goal, reconciliation with the brothers. Viewing Joseph as a type of Jesus, the same must be considered in this our human history and the Jewish people as they are led directly to the meeting and reconciliation with Jesus Christ. In order to see this is, in fact, how God does work. I'm going to read you something from 2 Samuel chapter 14, only one verse. It is spoken to King David by a woman from Tekoa as she attempts to reconcile the king to his estranged son. Now listen to how this represents kind of what we've been looking at. For we will surely die and become like spilled water on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. It's exactly what's going on right here. This woman from Tekoa, speaking to King David, nailed it as far as Jesus' heart towards the Jewish people. It's all in the Bible, and it is all about God's love. He reconciled us. To him, and he's doing the same thing now. We've all come to Jesus Christ. We're sitting in church, the Gentile bride, but he's going to be doing this again, and he's established it in 1948, 1967, and whatever's happening in the world that seems troubling, God is gearing it all towards this beautiful reconciliation, the love of God in Jesus Christ. Imagine that. What Joseph has done towards his brothers and what God has done towards Israel is perfectly summed up in that woman's idea. And now I want to give you my thoughts on today's verses. The brothers have been in the presence of Joseph. They've been in his house, they've been celebrating, and yet they haven't recognized him. This points to the Jewish people in the end times, back in Israel, 
back in the temple which is going to be built in the presence of their king and not even recognizing it. Remember, these brothers were sitting in the same room. And they didn't even know who he was. Until they acknowledge him in his past and present role as the suffering servant who now sits at God's right hand, he will not reveal himself to them. They must acknowledge the Jesus they rejected in order to have him return and save them. This is so clearly laid out in the Old Testament that it is simply astonishing that people miss it. It's even spoken of in the New Testament by Jesus himself in a verse which I quote time and time again. It's from Matthew 23 where Jesus said these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How I wanted to gather you as a children, you children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is all about Israel. Everything about it is about Israel. We're going to be gone. The rapture's coming. He is not going to return physically to the earth until they call on him. And that's from his own words. Joseph orders that they be given as much food as they can carry and to return their money as well. The food is the word of God. We've seen that in every single sermon that's been coming. It is both testaments of the Bible. They have the full supply of bread before them now. Keep thinking of the brothers. Keep thinking of Israel. The money is returned because there can be no payment made for what is grace, especially when they had sold their brothers, as I said, 20 years earlier. The money that they had would have included that part of their uh, sale of him in their wealth. What is free cannot be paid for. It is pointing to the grace of God in Christ, which is something we cannot buy, and it is something we cannot earn. This is why that word amtachat has been used again and again and again for describing their sacks. It means to spread out. It pictures God spreading out the story filled with grain, which is the word. It is the spread out and fully revealed word of God. It reveals what is hidden. It shows what has been concealed, represented by the silver, which was twice hidden in their sacks. If you remember that special word that he said, we have treasure hidden in your sacks, is pointing to all of the pictures of Christ throughout the Old Testament, but they don't see it. Their eyes are blind to it. And then at first, if you remember, the first time that the word sack was used, it actually used the Hebrew word sack, S-A-Q. It implies sackcloth. They had the Old Testament, which showed the law, the woe, and the suffering, all which sack implies. It's not God's fully revealed plan. But all during these stories, since that first time the word sack was used, this other word, amtachat, not sack, has been used. And in the Bible, it is used only in these Joseph stories, and it's an account which is pointing to the reconciliation between Jesus and Israel. The grain in their sacks, once again, there were two words used for grain. One was shever and one was bar. The grain in their sacks, even now, is shever, which means to break or to breach, instead of the word bar, which means purified. There is a breach between their understanding of the word and what the word actually says. And this is not a stretch here because only one more time is grain going to be mentioned in relation to this account and the word bar, purified grain, not shever, is going to be used. And it will only be after the revealing of Joseph to his brothers. They will have the pure word of God before them. Only in the Hebrew, because we translate all of these words grain. You would never get this in the English. And nobody even bothers to check why is God using these different words synonymously because they're not being used synonymously. He is picking every single word specifically to lead us to understand his word and his relationship with all of his covenant people, Jew, Gentile, church, Israel, kingdom age. It's all being prefigured in these stories that God has given us in Genesis so that we have all of human history laid out before us. Into this sack of grain, the shever, this breached or broken uh, grain of Benjamin's bag is placed in the cup, the gabia. And so we need to remember what Benjamin pictures here. At his birth, if you remember that sermon, it was so clear, it is so beautiful. His birth and how he was named, that it's just, it's marvelous what happened. He pictured Jesus Christ. If you missed that sermon, I would ask you to go back and watch it. The birth of Benjamin, simply astonishing. 
He was named. His mother is having this child and she's in great agony. And as the child is born, she is dying. And so she named him Ben-Oni, the son of my suffering. Jacob, however, changed his name to Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Like Christ, before the exaltation, you had the suffering. Benjamin here pictures Christ who first bears the cup. But there's a multi-level play on the words of, for cup in this particular passage. In the New Testament, there is a word which is used and it is used only one time, but it is exactingly brought into the gospel records. It's being named also specifically in Greek and in Aramaic by John so that we don't fail to check what this word is here for. I'm going to read it to you now. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. That's John 19.13. Now I want you to know, I read from the NIV there. Normally I uh, preach out of the New King James Version, but I read the NIV there because the word is Aramaic. It's not Hebrew. Many translations say in Hebrew, it's Gabbatha. It's an Aramaic word. So I, I wanted to make that distinction there. The cup here. Gabia is named from a root word conveying the sense of elevation or roundness, like a goblet. I explained that earlier. But the word Gabatha means elevated place, a knoll, hence a round area, like a goblet. Like Benjamin with the Gabia, there at Gabatha, Jesus was charged and he was committed to his execution. Remember the brother said, whoever finds this, let him be executed and the rest of us will be your slaves. That's exactly what we've seen with Benjamin here. So now what I want to do is I want to read you all of John 19, 1 through 30. And as I read this, I want you to think about the Jewish people as they sold off Jesus to his death. Remember, Benoni, the son of my suffering, is what was pictured in Christ's first advent. And the brothers sold off Joseph, and he was the son of suffering at that time. Okay? Remember as I read also that what I said earlier about Benjamin's sack. They've been accused of a crime, and they're denying they have committed one. They're actually unaware of the guilt they bear, but they are guilty. Even though they don't realize it, they sold off Joseph, whom Benjamin is now picturing, the suffering son. And after his suffering, Joseph was exalted. He became the leader of all of Egypt. Thus, Benjamin again pictures Jesus, the son of my right hand. Israel has missed this for 2,000 years, but the story shows to us that the time for them to know him and for him to be revealed to them has come. And I mean, this may happen in our lifetime. That prophecy update shows us that things are starting to move quicker and quicker and quicker. They're back in the land. Part of the deal is to give away some land. The Hasidic Jews want to have a temple. They've actually mentioned a temple for the first time, I think, ever recently. All of these things are coming and it's all coming right now. Man, I'm so excited about the world that we live in. I thank God for the the age that we can see God's hand actually being fulfilled in our lifetime. So let me read you John 19. I'm going to start at verse 1, and I'm just going to read the 30 verses without any comment. But think of Israel, think of Jesus, think about their rejection of him, and what he's going to do for them in the future. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put him on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Benjamin, the son of the right hand. Therefore, when Pilate heard that that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. 
Now in, it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Then it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it. Whose shall it be? That the scripture might be filled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw, therefore, his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. Well, I said there was a multi-level play on the word cup here. It is pointing to the trial at Gabbatha, but it is also the cup which Jesus prayed to be taken from him while in the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the garden, he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. The cup is the trial, and the trial was at Gabbatha. And the cup was the wrath of God poured out in full strength upon his own son. son of suffering. This is why Benjamin had the cup and why the brothers will have to defend him and be willing to trade places with him before Joseph will reveal himself to them. This is what Jesus said to Israel under the law. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. These are the things that the Bible says are coming and it has been shown in advance so that we do not err in saying that the church has somehow replaced Israel. Instead, the church, pictured by Joseph's Gentile wife, is referred to between the accounts of Joseph's brothers. And this is why Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, will later be adopted by Joseph. How can we deny what God has so clearly showed us? This is why the servant asked, Why have you repaid evil for good? God sent his son for the good of all mankind, but they rejected what he did for them. And this is why the word divination was used as it was. It indicates testing. In other words, the cup was their test, and they failed the test. They didn't accept his work. That cup was the cup of God's wrath, his trial at Gabbatha, his cross at Calvary, and God's way of proving it to us. He's absolutely going to prove it to us when he uses the word nahash, divination, which is that word I said means serpent in the noun form. It is the same word of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It's the same word for the bronze serpent, which was held up in the wilderness to save the people when they were bit. All these poisonous vipers biting at their heels and God sent grace to them. That serpent is the one referred to by Jesus in the New Testament. And I want to read that to you again so that you don't forget it. And as Moses lifted up the serpent, the Nahash in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. One serpent tested man, man failed, and he was condemned. One serpent was used to prefigure the cross of Jesus Christ, where man is pardoned. One results in God's wrath, 
One results in God's healing grace. One brought death. One brings eternal life. This is why the servant asked the question, is this not the one from which my Lord drinks? Yeah, he did drink from it. He drank God's wrath. Jesus drank it down to its very dregs for you and for me and for his brothers Israel too. The question is, will they defend their brother Benjamin so that Jesus Christ will be revealed in them in power in the coming kingdom age? We're going to see in the sermons ahead, and I can tell you it's good news for Israel. There is so much in these 17 verses which point to the work of Jesus Christ, the hidden, the amazing details of what he has shown and what he is going to do. Now, I tried to give you just enough of them to show God's amazing plan for Israel. They're back in the land, and the time is coming, and I believe it is coming very, very soon. In the end, it all points to Jesus and to his love for all people, both Jew and Gentile. It also shows his faithfulness to Israel. Despite being sold off by them, Joseph develops this plan to test them and to bring about reconciliation. And Jesus has done exactly the same thing in human history, showing us the details in these stories. Jesus Christ is the ever-faithful, merciful, and full-of-grace Lord. So what I want to do is I want to ask for just one more minute to share with you how you too can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and why he is the only way that this is possible. There's no other way to receive God's pardon. It's because we have something in us called sin. It's evident from the very first pages of the Bible when man disobeyed God, sin entered the world, and because of that, death through sin. I said to somebody yesterday, talking to them about Jesus, I said, you know what? We don't have to teach people to do wrong. When you have children, you're going to know it because you got children and you have to teach them to do right. They already know how to lie to you. They already know how to do Any parent here to disagree with that? No. We know intuitively that we have sin in our lives. It is inherited from our first father. But God had a plan all the way from the very beginning to take care of that sin problem. So here we go. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Then it says that the wages of sin is death. On the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Well, he didn't die that day. So either God is a liar or he's not talking about their physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. We are separated from God spiritually. And eventually, that wears us down to the point where we actually physically die as well. And if you don't get that resolved with God before that death comes, then you'll be spiritually dead for all eternity. The old saying is, uh, uh, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You get right with Jesus Christ and you'll have eternal life and you will never die again. So the Bible goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can't earn it. It's a gift. We can't pay for it. We can't do anything except simply receive what God did in his son, Jesus Christ. The trial, the cup, and the judgment it was all done for you and me. He didn't just hang on a cross to say, well, there's other ways, but you know, I'm going to give people a pass if they don't call on me. This is the only way. That is the only way to satisfy God's wrath. And it was all done in his own son. It's amazing. I can't get over it. Day after day, I think, God, why would you do that for a guy like me? If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, Paul writes another verse in Romans. He says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's what Israel's going to have to do in the verses ahead. And that's what what each one of us individually must do. We must call out and say, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I know Jesus can. And the resurrection proves it. The cross handled our sin problem. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that our sin, sin problem is handled. So call on him and be reconciled to him. Okay? Our closing verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 51. Thus says your Lord, this is God speaking to Israel. Think of what we just went through with these verses. Thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. Why would God say that to them? It's because they have now had a conversion in their life to understanding that Jesus Christ took all of the wrath of God that was necessary to satisfy every sin ever in human history. And God is willing to say, I'm going to take the cup away from you. It's either in us or it's in him. Thank God that it can be in him. Next week is Genesis uh, 44, verses 18 through 34. This is Judah's impassioned plea. 
Okay, that'll be our 111th Genesis sermon. Judah's really going to defend Benjamin. Wonderful stuff there. We've got more, more sermons until it's all done. But you saw today, I mean, the pinnacle of what God did in Jesus Christ. And it's all pictured in a silver cup in grain. The word of God, it's all hidden right in there. Then all we have to do is just dig it out and see that God loves us enough to show us these things. I got a poem for you today as I do every week. A couple people that have never been here before may not know this, but I started with Genesis 1-1 and I've taken the verses that we go through and I made a poem out of them. And we're getting ever so much closer to the end of a poem which comprises all of the book of Genesis. But here we go. This is called The Cup and the Judgment. And he commanded the steward of his house saying, fill the men's cups with food to take back. As much as they can carry to you I am relaying and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup I implore you, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, an unknown token. And his grain money, put that in too. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys who brayed as the men yawned. When they out of the city had gone and were not yet far off but still near, Joseph said to his steward, come on, get up, follow the men before they disappear. And when you overtake them, say it's say so it's understood. Why have you gone and repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil and so doing me thinks. So he overtook them, these 11 folk, and to them these same words he spoke. And they said to him as together their voice did ring, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, to you we certainly brought back from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sack. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? We are honest men, as before we told. With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die to you, this we speak. And we also will be my Lord's slaves remaining bound, even if our future were to remain so bleak. And he said, Now also let it be, according to your words and your address, he with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be blameless. Then each man let down his sack with speed to the ground, and each opened his sack, showing he was not a man of greed. So he searched as each man did unpack. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, filled with remorse and pity, and each man loaded his donkey, and so they returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers, each and all, came to Joseph's house, surely making a mournful sound. And he was there, and they did fall before him there on the ground. And Joseph said to them by and by, What deed is this you have wrought? Did you not know that a man such as I can certainly divine and see what that which I have sought? Then Judah said, certainly trembling and weak, What shall we say to my Lord? What of value to you shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? By what word? God has found out the iniquity of your servants this day. So here we are, my Lord's slaves, so both we and he also with whom the cup was found will stay. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so in this manner so grave. The man in whose hand the cup was found, only he shall be kept here, and he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. I will keep him here and not another. What Joseph has done involves a detailed plan to finally bring reconciliation between his brothers and he. And it is no different than God's redemption of man. He has devised ways to reunite, reunite us and bring us about harmony. He works in our lives in ways we cannot perceive, but it is for an intended purpose and goal. His plans are meant to bring us to where we believe that he alone can save our wayward soul. In demonstration of his great love and unending care, he has worked in history to reconcile us. And there in the Bible is the place that where we find the story of his plan, all centered on Jesus. Yes, Lord, thank you for this wonder that you have wrought and carefully recorded in the Bible so that we can be taught. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you've done for us. Thank you for the cup and the judgment which takes away the wrath from us, reconciles us to you. Thank you for that. Lord God, you are perfect in all your ways. And what seems like a harsh and angry attitude towards the people of the world is in fact the most 
perfect display of love that we could ever imagine. And you give us the choice to participate in it or to turn away from it. Every wound that we have in our lives is self-inflicted, every one of them. Every wound that each nation has is self-inflicted, including your covenant people, Israel, the brothers and sisters of our Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you that we can turn and be healed. And thank you that the promise of that covenant, which you spoke to them thousands and thousands of years ago, is going to be fulfilled when you come again to them and reveal yourselves to them. And so I pray for Israel today. I pray that all of these troubles that are coming on the world right now will all be swept away in the near future and that you will rejoice in your people and that they will exalt you. And I'm so glad to be a part of that. And I know each person here that has called on Jesus also is a part of that. And they're thoroughly, thoroughly pleased with it. But if there's a heart here that has never called on you, I would ask that you not give them a moment of sleep until they do. You're great, you're glorious, you're perfect in all your ways, and we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.